Welcome to Healthy Enough, a podcast focusing on building wellness in kids with mental health challenges. I'm Dr. April Bowling, and I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Jamie Slavitt. Together, we're harnessing research and realism to help parents of children with diverse mental health challenges understand how small exercise, nutrition, and sleep habits can lead to big improvements in their kids' mental and physical wellness. Today, we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Rachel Blaine. Dr. Blaine is an associate professor of nutrition at California State University, Long Beach, where she also directs the didactic program in dietetics. She's a registered dietitian who completed her doctorate degree in public health nutrition at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. And she's now founded Autism Wellness, which is a wonderful organization aimed at helping parents of kids with autism help their children develop healthy habits, including nutritional habits. Her research is focused on nutrition and autism spectrum disorder, and particularly childhood nutrition and feeding, parent behaviors as they relate to child health, so things like food parenting and child snacking. And really importantly, she also researches how to promote education and policy changes in clinical child care and educational settings. So hi, Rachel. We really want to thank you for being here today. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. First thing we were hoping that you might talk about, you know, this podcast is really aimed at parents of kids who have a variety of different mental health challenges, neurodevelopmental challenges, and oftentimes comorbidities, so more than one diagnosis at once. You've really made it the mission of your research and practice, it seems, to help kids with autism and their parents live healthier and particularly eat healthier. Um, So could you talk a little bit about your kind of professional and personal journey that led you to this place? Sure. Uh, I certainly never saw myself uh, doing this research. I never honestly saw myself being a professor. So, you know, big surprise to me as I was someone that liked working and didn't really like being in school that much. Um, But when I was in college, I uh, was pre-med, I was studying neurobiology and took an intro nutrition class. And um, I had been, you know, uh, an overweight kid my pretty much my whole life. And I just really struggled with, you know, figuring out how to, you know, make changes to my eating habits and activity. And I remember taking this nutrition class and I read that textbook cover to cover. I just thought it was so interesting and fun and I love talking about fiber and uh, I just I loved it. And so I said, okay, this is the field for me. So, you know, I've been uh, in in the world of nutrition and then specifically in public health, which is really like, you know, promoting messages in you know, understandable bite-sized chunks for, you know, people, um, people like me, you know, at the time. And uh, I got into uh, uh, being a registered dietitian after a few years of working and eventually went on and got my master's degree and doctorate. And my focus had always really been on trying to prevent childhood obesity because, uh, you know, from my own personal experience, I knew how difficult it was to try to undo, you know, a lifetime of, you know, habits and behaviors and just sort of how I'd been conditioned to, you know, interact with food and experience food. And it's challenging. And it's not to say it's not worth doing as an adult, but it's it's harder to do it um, when you're an adult. So I was really interested in sort of, we call that the upstream approach, thinking, okay, way farther up, what can I do to help parents of kids, especially young kids, um, to make healthy eating the easy choice or the natural choice? And how do you help families if they have to maybe change what they're doing? So that's what I was studying when I was getting my doctorate degree. 
and was really interested in it. I was working in childcare settings and I was working on, you know, studying parents and, you know, how they fed their kids snacks and snacking in front of television and, you know, just learning all about the, like the researchy components of being a parent. And then my last year of uh, my doctorate actually got pregnant and became a mother myself. And, uh, you know, I think I learned over the years and having my own child, my first child, I have two kids now, I have a daughter who's six and a son who's four, uh, you know, research versus practice are not always the same thing. And I realized that, you know, parenting has a lot of nuances. And in the whole process of becoming a parent, my, my oldest child, Eva, um, she's on the autism spectrum. And uh, so things that I had sort of learned about parenting and child feeding didn't always work or translate exactly with her as I kind of had expected, you know, me feeling like, oh, I know all this, I'm, I'm, I'm going to knock this out of the park. And like, from the moment she was born, breastfeeding was hard. And I was like a mini expert in breastfeeding. Um, and, you know, we knew probably from, you know, her first hours that probably something neurologically was going on. We had, a, unfortunately, a traumatic birth for her. And so, yeah, as a parent, personally, and professionally, I just saw how, um, you know, research was informing my experience as a parent, um, but it didn't always match with what my experience was. And eventually, as she eventually, my daughter got uh, her diagnosis with autism, which was closer to about three. Um, I was on all these parent groups on Facebook and just seeing how, uh, you know, nutraceutical companies and, you know, all kinds of influencers are just preying on parents who have children with a variety of, um, you know, neurodiversity. For me, I was in the autism world, so that's what I was seeing. And it made me really angry. And I would complain to my husband and say, oh my gosh, they're marketing this $100 supplement that you could buy for $5 at CVS, but it has an autism puzzle, puzzle piece on it. And parents are willing to buy it. And people are saying, you have to do this diet and there's no science behind it. And he was like, well, you should do something about that then. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And so eventually I did. So that's been my, you know, hopefully will be my life's work. This is really where I've shifted all of my research, all of my practice. And I'm like, you'd mentioned, I'm doing research to try to support families, to educate medical professionals, and then outside of that, I'm, um, I teach cooking classes for autistic college students on campus. So I get a really cool kind of life course perspective thinking about little kids, but also working on helping adults and seeing what their challenges and interests and needs are. Uh, and that's been really rewarding. Thank you so much for being here and, and sharing about your amazing journey. And I know many other parents of children with autism will benefit from, from your experiences, both as a researcher and your lived experience. We often hear from parents of kids with autism, especially teens, that what their child eats is pretty much the least of their concern. Can you talk a little bit about why a healthy diet is so important for kids with autism and what some of the major challenges to healthy eating may be for these kids? Sure. So I completely understand as a parent, all parents, we're always prioritizing and sometimes, you know, we just have to focus on the most urgent need in front of us. And then if you have a child with, uh, you know, autism or, you know, for a lot of people that have autism, by the way, I use the word autistic um, because in the um, uh, adult autism community and in um, a lot of advocacy groups, the autistic adults prefer being called autistic, which is very against our person first research language. Um, but that's what they're asking for us to use. So I might use the words, I, I use aut autistic often, but sometimes I'll say with autism. So I'm, you might hear interchangeable. I just wanted to say that really quickly. Um, so the reason that healthy diet is important is because, you know, parents may be dealing with things like, you know, um, poor sleep or, you know, behavioral challenges 
challenges or depression or anxiety, all of those are influenced by how well nourished our brains are and how well nourished our bodies are. And often it might seem like an accessory or like a special extra goal to like worry about diet or eat healthier. But I feel like diet interacts with sleep, interacts with energy, interacts with mental health. I think they're all connected. And if you sort of ignore one of those, you know, kind of foundational things, you may be able to really help a child who is having some, you know, behavioral challenges or depression or, um, you know, fill in the blank um, by looking at their, um, their diet. And it doesn't have to be putting them on a diet, but just looking at ways to help improve the way they're eating or the quality of their food. Um, and I think that can be really valuable. A diet affects sleep. Um, and so, you know, if, if kids aren't, you know, if, for example, iron deficiency uh, is really closely linked with uh, restless limbs and poor sleep. And I've heard from a lot of sleep specialists that just addressing iron deficiency in autistic kids uh, can be a very simple but effective first pass, easy thing to try. So, you know, I think that's, you know, maybe my argument for parents, it doesn't have to be your whole world, you might have to really triage and focus right now, we're just focus on self injurious behavior, or right now we really just need to focus on learning at school. Uh, but I think that, you know, if you can look at this as one of the tools in your toolkit to help those things, it can be um, beneficial. And um, in terms of why there can be challenges to healthy eating for um, autistic kids, it's, it's multifactorial, I think. You know, we know that kids have unique sensory needs. So if you imagine you've got your senses and they're all on like a dial from a scale, you know, a, you know, one to 10, you can turn the volume up and down. Some kids might have the volume up at like 10 for smells and then like at negative five for texture and they need crunchy texture, but they hate smell. And so just the sensory experience of the food could be really revolting. And I've heard autistic adults say, it's like asking me to eat vomit. Um, you know, I understand you want me to eat this food, but it's just sensorily just so overwhelming. So you've got the sensory piece, you have strong preferences that just come with autism, um, you know, having just preference for sameness, uh, you know, chicken nuggets from Tyson or McDonald's chicken nuggets. I mean, chicken nugget in Russia that I've had at McDonald's uh, is the same as a chicken nugget in Beijing that I've had at McDonald's because anytime I've gone traveled, I've been taken to McDonald's on these different trips. And you know, it's all the same, the, the sauces are different. Um, but if you know you're going to have sameness, right, the same nugget, the same goldfish, that is comforting to an autistic brain. And so it, it's understandable why some of these preferences get more set, whereas an apple can be mushy, it can be bruised, it can be green, it can, I mean, you know, you could have all apples in the same bag and they could all taste different. Uh, and then we also know that most autistic children and adults as well um, have some type of um, GI or gastrointestinal or um, gut challenges, whether it's constipation or diarrhea. And if you're not feeling good, if you imagine how you might feel if you've had a stomach bug or, you know, you've just, um, or you're feeling really anxious or nervous and you don't feel like eating, um, that can affect whether or not you want to eat at all. And then the last I think big challenge is just um, challenges with feeling um, the signaling of the body. So some children with autism might um, not feel hunger um, very often or at all, or thirst, and then some might feel constantly hungry and never feel like that can be turned off. So, you know, you have all of these things together, and then you add that uh, um, children with autism in general don't um, get as much physical activity as their neurotypical peers. And being physically active increases your appetite. So the more um, sedentary you are, the less you move. If you're a child that's prone to, uh, to not eating as much or prone to not being as interested in food, that can just make it worse. So it's not one thing, it's like five things that contribute to eating being more challenging for kids with autism. 
Totally. And you're speaking this podcast language, right? So, you know, last episode, we talked about sleep and some of the challenges of sleep that um, kind of go along with different neurodevelopmental and psychiatric diagnoses. And the small changes that you might make to move the dial, all these things are interrelated. And yes, parents have to kind of pick and choose where to start, especially in the context of their families and their kids. But one of the things that's really, really important is that they have the resources at their disposal, which includes professionals that actually know how to work with populations that have these challenges. And so that's where I think so much of the importance of your work comes in. I remember when I met you at Harvard, I was at a totally different place in my life, right? I already had my kids and they were middle schoolers. So I'd actually already been through the ringer of learning that, you know, the things that you read in a book <laughs> are oftentimes not the things that work with your children, right? And I hadn't met Jamie yet. So he hadn't kind of schooled me on the ways of really working with, with kids in clinical settings. So, um, but I remember meeting you and I remember thinking, wow, you know, here's somebody who understands nutrition, um, but is able to translate the science in a way that is, um, you know, consumable by folks who have other things to do in their life and who don't want to make this, you know, the sole focus of their life. Um, and so I'm really pleased that you're kind of bringing this perspective to bear um, when it comes to helping kids with autism and their families. Um, one of the big things that we've heard, and you and I have collaborated on a research project that um, spent a lot of time with parents um, exploring some of the barriers and facilitators of healthy um, uh, habit parenting. Um, and a lot of kids expressed that when they have tried taking their child to a nutritionist or a registered dietitian, what that um, clinician recommends is not realistic for their child, right? And that can be really frustrating to take the time and spend the money to go to an RD to get advice. Um, and then, for example, the RD tells them, well, your, your child should be eating five, you know, servings of vegetables a day. And as you just described, you know, the child views that as, as you know, potentially a, a really noxious task that's not going to go down necessarily. Um, so you specifically address this in your own kind of research as an RD. But what are some of the kind of top tips that you would give to parents to realistically help their child eat a little bit better? And how might those tips vary with a child's age? Sure, this is a great question. And yes, I, I am fully cognizant, you know, I could talk about nutrition and read about nutrition, you know, till I'm blue in the face, but that is just not that interesting to other people, or that important. And, uh, and so yes, I appreciate it. So, you know, and uh, people that have kids with unique, you know, medical needs, uh, don't have a lot of time, they're spending a lot of it taking care of their kids. So yeah, it has to be uh, simple. Uh, so, in terms of some tips for helping kids eat better, I think it does definitely depend on age group. I think for younger kids, my best advice is to just continue encouraging constant exposure to foods. It doesn't mean a child has to eat it, but for us in our house, having even if it's like a pea-sized portion, I mean, I'm talking a teeny portion of food so that the smell may not be overwhelming, it may not be huge, but just tolerating it being on a plate is a pathway towards enjoying a food. So I think just tolerating food being around, and this is where my experience deviates a little bit from research. Research says, um, in terms of child feeding, it says, you know, everything should be family style. All food should be on the plate and children should be able to serve themselves from communal bowls. And that just doesn't work for some kids with sensory needs. Um, it doesn't work for kids that truly will never 
internally have the motivation to change their diet. They're just not going to because that just comes from a desire for sameness and expecting that to happen isn't necessarily realistic. So finding child-centered positive ways to encourage them without a lot of pressure, I think is the best approach. So exposure to food can include playing with it, touching it. Um, my daughter, you know, has, uh, you know, very, um, uh, what's the word I want to use? She has a, a very, I don't want to say delicate. She has a unique palate. She has strong preferences, you know, as all kids do. And then she has her own layer of sensory preferences. And so, you know, adding things on top of food was initially something she hated, but we grew cilantro in the garden and she could pick it and chew it. And now she puts handfuls of it on her food. We grew tomatoes. She could see that that was a tomato outside that she could touch, not eat, experience. And now she loves pico de gallo. So, you know, she'll put salsa on everything. Um, but if I just given her salsa, no way. So I think looking at food, you know, as sort of like an exploration um, can be a really positive way. And there's lots of great resources I can talk about later about how to do that. Um, if children have true like gagging or huge aversions to sensory stuff, I think you need to get an occupational therapist involved young. I think sometimes parents wait too long and then children are down to maybe like 10 foods and it's really, it can be, it, it you can absolutely make progress, but it can be hard to add new things back. So trying to access um, therapy can be helpful. And then for young kids and older kids, just give them tons of options, sauces, condiments, different preparations. Um, my daughter wouldn't eat rice until she could put her own um, cracked pepper on it. And I mean, it's it might insult a delicate cook to see how much she puts on it, but now she can eat lots of brown rice and lots of grains and things that she wouldn't have been able to eat before just because she has some control over the seasoning. She's like a sensory, she likes the input of heat and stuff. So um, so that's young kids. For older kids, uh, you know, involving them in food preparation. So if they're able to tolerate cooking and preparing food, sometimes certain scents they may not be able to. Cheese can be especially kind of overwhelming. Um, selecting food and encouraging them to have some um, ownership over what they want to try and explore. And that might require a little, you know, gentle nudging, say, hey, we're as a family, we're going to try to explore this this month, you know, which of these options would you like to explore? Um, if we go grocery shopping, what would you like to select? Uh, you know, and then for both age groups, if you're looking at younger and older kids, if you're going to be encouraging new foods, you always have to keep safe foods in the house. That means that it is not realistic to sit down at a meal and say, here's your kale Caesar salad with um, some salmon. Uh, and, you know, you don't have to eat it, but here it is and there's nothing else. That is not reasonable. That's not child-centered. And so a child should always have what we call safe foods, foods you know they're going to eat. So if you have to have goldfish, you know, and your usual chicken nuggets and you put a teeny piece of the kale Caesar on the plate or you have them help mix, you know, um, the olive oil and the lemon onto the salmon, fine. But um, you want to make sure that eating is a safe and not stressful experience. Um, keep offering stuff. I think the other big mistake parents make is they say, um, she doesn't like that. He doesn't like that. And, and the word you always have to add is yet. They don't like it yet. My daughter, if I could do a graph of tortillas, um, you know, I've had year, you know, where she'll eat them, a year two, she'll eat them, year three, four, five, didn't, year six does. Um, if I'd never, and I could do this with rice, I mean, a lot of basic staples, pasta, we've gone through ups and downs of foods that if I had just said, well, she doesn't like it, period, she really would have very few 
whole grains at all in her diet. Um, and I just kept offering it with safe foods. And even if it's a, a, you know, a ripped piece of a tortilla or like one half of a penne noodle on the plate, I would keep offering it to her. She does, she could choose if she wanted to eat it or not. Um, but eventually she did. And then she's, you know, surprising me by taking, you know, a tortilla and spreading avocado all over it and putting salsa on top. And these are things that I just, like, I would never have thought she'd be able to do when she was three. So also just being encouraged that our children are changing and that developmentally what a kid is eating at two or six could be different than what they're eating at 12 or 16 or 19. So, uh, you know, adults have preferences that change, um, you know, neurotypical children and adults do. So, the last thing I'd like to say is really encouraging eating being a social experience. Uh, I worked with private clients in the past and there was a 14 year old um, boy that I worked with and I remember he had a very limited diet. He was he was down to maybe 12 foods and his mom was saying, you know, it's so hard to get protein in him and she was so exasperated. She's like, you know, I've tried for years, just peanut butter, just eat peanut butter and he would never try it and then went to his grandma's one day and she's like, oh, here's a peanut butter sandwich and like he ate it and now he eats peanut butter just because grandma offered it to him. I've been offering it for years and years and years and so um, not going ahead of your child and telling everyone, no, 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 they won't eat any of this, they won't eat any of that. Always have safe food if you're going to go other places, but don't go ahead of them and assume that they're not going to eat things. I've seen my children sit at the, you know, we, we have the elementary school across the street and the kids get lunch from the school. And my daughter has sat down next to her friends, opened up the bag of whatever they're serving from the school to eat. And she's nibbled on stuff that I'm like, there's no way she would have eaten that. But her friend, Ella, is sitting there eating the same thing. So just thinking about how socially, um, and I see this with my, my autistic college students too, who had never tried broccoli, never tried yogurt they're all sitting there together being like well my friends are trying it I guess I can you know I you know I don't have to but maybe I'd be willing to because other people are doing it so just not giving up it's a journey it sounds like you're really encouraging parents to have a growth mindset and think about the long term you know and not get hung up on one episode of, of a child refusing a particular food but kind of being open to different possibilities that might happen in the future Absolutely. It's it's truly the long haul. I think of it like it's not today's bite, it's tomorrow's delight. It's really trying to think about how can you cultivate a positive relationship with food? And if it's, please eat this, please eat this, I'll give you this if you eat this, please, 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 please. Um, and it's a constant battle and it's something you're talking about constantly. Like, of course, kids are not going to enjoy eating and they're definitely not going to enjoy trying things. But if it can just be part of their life and just exploring and as you an adult modeling, we call it being an adventure eater in my house, modeling, trying things you may or may not like, trying different preparations and say, and being honest, I don't know if I really care for it this way yet, but I'll try it. Nope. Don't care for it. You know, if that's okay. Cause that's, that's an experience we have too, um, as parents. Yeah. I love that. I think, um, sometimes we, we, as parents get so overwhelmed by the rules. We talk a lot. The whole, the whole reason this podcast is called healthy enough is to dispel this idea that it's all or nothing, right? You're either living in the woods of Maine, growing your own blueberries and goat cheese, or you're eating McDonald's seven times a day, right? It, that's not how life is for most people, right? So it's this idea of there aren't rules, figuring out what works, works for your family. And I love that kind of curiosity that you're talking about, because I think that throws off the we shoulds and turns it into we could, you know, so it, it just kind of shifts mindset of parents. And I know as a parent myself, when I shift my mindset 
oftentimes my kids will eventually come along because I've taken the pressure out of something. I've taken the anxiety out of something for them. Absolutely. And kids are really sensitive to pressure, especially when it comes to food. I mean, if you've, if you've ever experienced it yourself, I mean, I can still remember being forced to eat creamed corn when I was like six years old at my grandma's house. Like I can feel it on the fork. (laughs) I can feel it still, you know, and I still don't like it. Um, You know, but just those experiences can be, you know, um, can really boomerang and have the, you know, the opposite effect that we're hoping for. Rachel, you've given so much good advice to parents during this episode, and you've really hit on our core values of embracing the struggle and every day just trying to work towards um, some small successes. If parents are looking for more specific help for their child's nutrition, what resources do you suggest? So if parents are thinking about helping kids that, that are selective or picky eaters, um, there's two great uh, accounts on Instagram that I'd recommend. One is called Feeding Littles and the other is Picky Eating Tips. I love both of these because they're very simple, practical, uh, bite-sized things that a parent could try out. And there's a variety of them. So if one doesn't apply to your kid, there's lots of options. So that's a really simple thing. If you're online on Instagram, you can follow this account. That's something small where you could be just getting some new, fresh ideas. Um, There's two great books uh, for picky eating. One is called The Eating Handbook for Children with Autism. It's by Michelle Brown. um, And that's very autism focused. So it, it definitely addresses like sensory issues and um, uses some behavioral strategies that might be helpful specifically for autistic kids. And the other one is a more general book. It's called Helping Your Child with Extreme Picky Eating. That's by Katja Roll, and that's more of a child-led book um, that could apply to lots of kids. Um, I think this would work really well for kids with a variety of, um, you know, uh, types of neurodiversity, and so I think this is a nice book. Um, and then in, if, if parents are concerned, I always say, you know, trust your, your mom or dad or caregiver gut. If there's something you think is not being addressed by your doctor and you think you need more help, uh, there are interdisciplinary feeding therapy teams that have psychologists and occupational therapists, um, speech pathologists, dietitians, like a whole group of people. I think those can be very helpful. Um, And you could also, if you have a child that really doesn't seem to be interested in eating and you're worried about it affecting their growth or weight, you could look into um, people that have experience with it. There's a new uh, category of eating disorder. It's called ARFID. It's Avoidive Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, which is essentially very similar to anorexia, but without the interest or concern about body image or body weight. It's really just kind of a disconnection with eating. And this seems to apply to a lot of children with autism. And so maybe for older kids, working with somebody that has a a background in eating disorders who could help, um, you know, with therapeutic approaches to addressing ARFID, you could look this up and see if you think it is a good fit for your kid. But I've heard parents of older kids feel like that could be helpful. Um, And then I also just want to mention too, you know, um, a majority of kids with autism are actually, um, uh, you know, overweight or obese, there's a real much, there's a much higher risk um, for these kids often because of the kind of medications that they're on. And so if you are concerned about your child's weight and you feel like you need strategies for, um, you know, helping them with their growth, or you're just not sure how to address that, I would definitely talk to your doctor, um, you know, or see if you can get a referral to a dietitian that specializes in pediatrics. Um, Because again, the earlier you can help them with healthy eating habits or regulation or eating filling foods, if they don't have that feeling of turning off that hunger signal, the earlier you can do that, the easier it's going to be for them as they get older. Uh, And I think those are awesome, like in terms of professional resources, I think those are all great avenues. 
Thank you so much, Rachel. I think um, I'm just blown away by um, your wealth of knowledge about um, how to help children with autism eat in a healthy way and how to help all children eat in a healthy way. And I think parents listening to this podcast will really benefit from knowing that there are so many good resources and help out there. And I think you really differentiated which ones are evidence-based and which ones um, may be focused on um, making money or promising um, health and hope that, that they may or may not deliver. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. If you have any questions you'd like to submit for us to answer in future episodes, you can do so by emailing healthyenoughpodcast at gmail.com. That's healthyenoughpodcast at gmail.com. We hope you'll join us again. Until next time, be well.